0: Hello everyone, and before we get into this very special edition of The Understeer Podcast, I just wanted to warn you guys, if you hear any uh, echoing, sort of, from my side of the audio, that's just because it was on loudspeaker on Mario's end and the recording picked that up. Don't worry, I'm not speaking that much, but um, hope you enjoy the episode. Enjoy. Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Understeer Podcast. And today I'm joined by a guest who certainly needs no introduction. He's a 12-time Formula One Grand Prix winner, a Formula One world champion, an Indy 500 winner, and a Le Mans winner, amongst many other things. It is an absolute honour to welcome on Mario Andretti. Mario, how are you doing today? Um, what sort of first? Um, what first interested you about motorsport? What sort of encouraged you to get oh. started?
1: Well, as a young lad, it just it, uh, still living in Italy, I was born and raised there, and. Uh, uh, motorsports being so popular, uh, beginning with the, in the fifties, because of uh, uh, Ferrari, Maserati, Alfa Romeo being all protagonists uh, in Formula One, and uh, so as a as a young lad uh, with my twin brother Aldo, we just gravitated to it. You know, it was something that seemed like uh, uh, like that was the only thing that really interested us uh, from the very beginning, and um, and. And I pursued that throughout. You know, I just uh, started out as a dream, uh, especially after seeing the very first Grand Prix at age 14 in Monza. Uh, Then I guess the mold was cast at that point. I felt from there on there was uh, no plan B. Um, Pursued the so-called at the time seemed like uh, the absolute impossible dream, however. It's uh, just something for sure to pursue, and, uh, and that's it. Uh, you know, Even though uh, life was a bit uh, of an unknown at the time because of the war and all that and being displaced, uh, even in our own country, and then moving on to America. But um, as soon as I arrived in America, you know, two years after arriving here at uh, age 17, we started building a race car to race uh, locally, and um, that's it. In 1959, at age 19, I started, and my last race, uh, official race, was in in 2000, at the 24 hours of the month.
0: Yeah, amazing, Uh, absolutely, a huge career, and sort of, I think I read somewhere that you, did you start with um, dirt track racing, am I right?
1: Yeah, yes, dirt track racing, which was something uh, on a local level, very popular, and a perfect place to get started. and uh, and again, uh, just um, it was almost like starting in kindergarten, and then uh, looking up for the university, and finally graduating. Uh, so uh, that's really that was uh, the path that uh, that we chose, and that uh, was a natural path uh, for us. And uh, and again, um, once I started '59, uh, uh, nothing ever interrupted uh, my career. My brother, however, was fortunate um he had a terrible accident at the very last race of the first season and then uh 10 years later he had another one which ended his career but uh i was the the really lucky one Uh, and that's why i always say uh, i say this all the time i come with blessings every day because uh, again the sport has been fantastic to me uh, and it can be very cruel as we know
0: yeah, I think uh, we all know that. And sort of, you mentioned that was your first sort of experiences in a racing car. So how quick would you say you were compared to the rest of the field who presumably had a lot more experience than you and Aldo?
1: Well, quite honestly, uh, I tell you, we had a very auspicious beginning because uh, uh, at the start, uh, we had one race car and two drivers. And uh, so we had to toss a coin and uh, Aldo won the coin toss and uh, he won the very first Qualifying heat race and then the feature, the very first time out. So uh, that was encouraging, as you can imagine. Obviously, um, then it was up to me to repeat that the following week. Uh, Pressure's on. Yeah, pressure was on. You know, and it's a good kind of pressure, however, and uh, and it happened. And you know, we we did all the all the usual things. We crashed. We won, we crashed, and didn't win, we crashed, or won, you know, all those things. But uh, again, uh, when you can win in in your category at any level, it makes you feel like you belong. And then uh, if you can win there, then it's time to graduate. And that's what it is. You know, it's a process that uh, uh, makes you, gives you the confidence, of course. Um, but, um, uh, it's just like, uh, you know, we're going to school. If, if your grades are good and you're ready for the, for, for the next step for, yeah. to move up. So that's the way I looked at it. And, uh, and I always really look back at my season, uh, analyzing myself and, and saying, am I better off? Am I better, am I a better driver? Do I know a lot more? Than I did last year, and, and that was the encouraging part, which that uh, the answer was always yes.
0: Yeah, for sure. And what was that sort of relationship like between you and Aldo racing-wise? Because obviously, the competitiveness between two siblings is huge.
1: Well, Aldo and I had a you know I had a good relationship as uh, as brothers, uh, of course, because uh, we were sharing a lot of the same uh, ambitions and so forth. And and then uh, and again, uh, even when I moved on and uh, we started going separate ways. Uh, he continued for 10 years, you know, so even at one point uh, I was able to uh, uh, to provide, uh, he was driving sprint cars at the time and I provided him with the latest and greatest, uh, you know, in the sprint car, so he would have really good equipment uh, for himself to be able to, you know, to, to, to get the results. Uh, so again, and and, um, and even as, he, as I was progressing, uh, you know, just further than he was, he was always there, you know, for me, uh, you know, just, you know, cheering me on and never, never, ever once I got out of him, oh, you know, why you're so lucky and I'm not, you know, that type of thing. I was always, you know, the brother in love that, uh, you know, he was always there, you know, just cheering on and on. And although to today is, uh, it's always very positive attitude, you know, the old saying, uh, his glasses always have full and um, that's that's a great thing it's a great attribute to to his character and um, and it's been very helpful over the years even you know from the standpoint of a, just uh, maintaining a positive attitude no matter what
0: yeah i'm sure that must have been great to have someone supporting you all the way through that sort of motorsport world and sort of similarly what were your parents like were they supportive as aldo or were they not so supportive
1: well, it, it's very well known. This. I mean, at the very beginning, uh, I didn't dare. We didn't dare tell my dad first of all a race car because uh, uh, he was. Uh, I can only say he was ignorant about the sport to some degree. But, but however, uh, unfortunately, uh, fatalities were all too common in those days. Uh, you know, because the safety of the sport obviously was was not certainly one we were enjoying today. And. Um, so that was a big negative. And uh, if he would, we were still underage, if we would have told him, oh, you know, Dad, we're... Uh, you know that we were passionate about it, but uh, I figured, okay, you know, kids are passionate about a lot of things. You know, they want to be, uh, uh, you know, the skydivers. They want to be all the stupid things. <laughs> Not say stupid things. <laughs> crazy things, you know, but uh, uh, then they probably won't pursue it. But uh, at that point, again, uh, and, and even though uh, we were winning at the beginning and we were getting some some, uh, some you know, some play in, in local newspapers. I uh, think the artifact was uh, the language barrier, you know, from him. And so, uh, again, uh, to, to sum up the, uh, the question here, is uh, that uh, the first season, uh, we didn't dare tell him we were racing and he didn't know. And uh, he only found out when Alu got hurt at the, the mm. end of the season, which... Uh, um, in some ways, uh, you know, he felt that vindicated, if you will. Uh, but uh, it was tough the following year when he found out that we were, uh, you know, still racing again, which was, we were still underage, but still under 21. And, uh, but then once he realized that, uh, okay, you know, this is serious, um, then little by little he started asking Aldo, how's Mario doing? And then he would ask me, uh, how's Aldo doing? He wouldn't go directly to either one of us, but uh, and then uh, the first race that he actually attended was when I finally graduated to the top level in, uh, here in, in the United States to cars in 1964, which was, um, you know, about five years uh, uh, after the start. And, um, and, and I was, it was a daunting, you know, beginning for me because I didn't have any testing or any, you mm-hmm. know, real knowledge. I was doing there, but uh, I had a decent day and I finished 11th in the very first race and he was wondering why didn't you win, you know, then after that, uh, you know, he he was a very stout supporter as you can imagine, you know, uh, throughout the career. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I'm sure that must have been great to have someone supporting you all the way through that sort of motorsport world. And sort of similarly, what were your parents like? Were they as supportive as Aldo or were they not so supportive?
1: Well, it was about uh, earning, you know, from reputation. I was, uh, you know, I was doing quite well in the other, the lower categories and sprint cars, for instance, uh, and I got to the point that 64, um, I was racing against uh, some of the top drivers uh, in champ cars, uh, you know, at the top level. And um, and I won some races, uh, you know, against uh, the Foyt, Spavosky, Branson, all the. The, the top, um, you know, uh, echelon there, and um, and so uh, all of a sudden a seat became vacant uh, because of an injury um, on a, one of the top uh, teams, and um, so I was offered a, a, a test drive, and um, and that's it. I earned my way. The rest
0: um, is history, yeah. as they say.
1: That's just history, yeah. You know, and and, uh, and the following year in '65, which was uh, my very First season, full season uh, in the top category, uh, I won the championship. Um, And uh, so, again, that was again a great step for us forward. Um, And so, after that, we won another championship the year after, second, second, and then another championship later. So, uh, you know, things started working well for me. Uh, I was expanding, you know, my. my knowledge by by doing by going to a different category of sports cars. For instance, I wanted to do road racing more than anything because uh, my eye was always in Formula One. And, um, and I said this many times. Uh, I, I so welcomed the the opportunity to uh, to get to know Jimmy Clark in '65, uh, who won the race, the, Indy, the Indy race, where I finished third as a rookie. And then I got to know Colin Chapman and. Um, I remember that um, at one point I, I told Colin that someday I would like to do Formula One. And he said, Mario, he said, uh, whenever you think you're ready, call me and I will have a car for you. So that was a beautiful, beautiful words you know, for me at that point in my career. And um, because three years later, I did call him toward the end of the 68 season. I said, uh, uh, Colin, um, I'd like to think uh, that I'm ready you know, for you. And. And uh, true to his word, he um, he had a car for me, and we did a test in Italy in Monza. I was supposed to do Monza and Watkins Glen, the two last races of the season, but um, I had an issue for the Monza weekend because uh, I was drawing, going for the championship uh, here in IndyCars, and there was a conflict. There was a race on a Saturday, a dirt track race in Indianapolis uh, that counted toward the national championship. So I had to qualify on Friday and uh, come back to the States and race on Saturday and then go back to Monza for Sunday. And then there was a 24-hour rule that uh, we were promised was going to be waived uh, because we were in deficit by about an hour and a half. And um, I protested by, I think, you know, Ferrari could have been the only one protesting at that point. Um, And... um, So they did not let me start there. I didn't get to start. But two weeks later at Watkins Glen, which was my very first experience there, I put the car on pole, which was, uh, you know, obviously couldn't have been any better for me, especially being next to Jackie Stewart uh, at that point. Um, So, again, it was another very auspicious beginning for me, um, you know, to feel that, okay, uh, I think uh, I can do this at least uh, uh i think i've proven something so uh, all of these moments are precious moments in your career because mm. uh, uh it gives you that um confidence that's so necessary to be able to go forward and feel good about yourself
0: yeah um you mentioned uh colin chapman so what was that race um like between uh you and him sort of over the years that you obviously got that winning car in 78 we will come on to that I had a
1: fabulous relationship with Colin Chapman. Uh, he was uh, absolutely f- fantastic for me uh, uh, in every way. Uh, very incredibly supportive. Uh, he tried to give me everything that I needed. Uh, he always would to his drivers. But, uh, again, uh, I had a really, really, uh couldn't have been a, a better relationship, you know, for for a human being or a driver, you know, myself. uh, uh We we were good friends, but at the same time, on on the business side, uh, you know, I was just, uh, he was giving me everything that I, possible uh, for me to to get the job done. So, uh, yeah, I look back and this is another precious moment in my life.
0: Yeah. Um, If we can move back just a little bit to IndyCar, if you don't mind. Um, Obviously, you've had, we mentioned an Indy 500 winner. Um, How did you sort of deal with the bad luck that came about through, uh, I think it was the over 20 times that you entered the um, Indy 500, because you must have felt like you were going to win that after that third place in your rookie year
1: Yes indeed, and in fact uh, after finally won it uh, which was the only uh, the second time that I finished it you know, t- t- four years later my, my rookie year was 65 and in, in 69 uh, the second time that I finish the race I wanted and you know, I felt okay God willing if I'm still around I should be able to win a few more and uh, here again you know as you said uh, bad luck or whatever you know things uh, some things potentially maybe I could have controlled some not you know the mm-hmm. majority if you look back I I it was just uh, uh equipment failure you know primarily um and when I whenever I was uh, in a position to win, it was equipment failure, and then uh, in 1982 when uh, uh, when I was uh, a winner um, uh, vis-a-vis Bobby Unser, uh, he definitely um, uh, he definitely uh, had a uh, he, I don't know, sorry for saying a cheetah, but uh, he the um, <laughs> there was a, a penalty there the coming to him you know passing 11 cars under the yellow and then uh, that the penalty stayed but they decided to change the rule uh, instead of penalizing him a lap which is what the rule book said they uh, gave him a, they reinstated him as a winner and they gave him a $40,000 fine which was uh, to me was ridiculous yeah. today I can't even swallow that And then uh, the the best thing that I must say because of that, the following year, I, at the end of the driver's meeting in Indianapolis, uh, I asked the race director, Tom Binford, I said, Tom, uh, are the rules different, changed from last year? He said, nope. I said, so today, technically, if I pass 11 cars under the yellow and cross the finish line first, is the fine still $40,000? Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) I said, so the rule book will apply this year, but it didn't last year. So it was not his fault because you know he penalized Bobby, but uh, uh, there was you know there was six months later mm. they dragged this thing on you know and then uh, uh, so it became a legal matter and uh, but, but that was the part that hurt the most you know that uh, uh, at that point uh, he committed that infraction and they gave him a fine rather than the penalty by the rule book so. Uh, I still have that ring, you know. You know <laughs> no, actually, it was 1981. <laughs> but um, uh, anyway, the um, it was interesting because, uh, and I the reason that uh, um, in '81 uh, I was still in Formula One, and there was uh, uh, the race was conflicting. time was conflicting with uh, Monte Carlo. And so I had to have somebody else qualify the car. So I started last in the race. And then, uh, you know, I had a, I was second on the track. But, uh, you know, I'd technically, if you want to pass 11 cars on the L, it could have been a different story because, you know, there was a big distance between us uh, in the last stint. And I uh, still finished second, you know, fairly close to him. Uh, but, um, again, uh, still a satisfying event for me uh, from from last place. Um, and then later on, and uh, I think another one that really stings very very much today is in 1987 uh, when I had Adrian Newey as my um, race uh, race uh, engineer. Yep. It was just a fantastic time, you know, that, uh, I mean, I benefited from his knowledge tremendously and uh, we were, we dominated the month of, of, of May in 1987. Uh, I was quickest uh, every day that I was on track, uh, even when the pit stop competition <laughs> was on the side. We were on pole, and uh, I led every lap. It was uh, 23 laps to go after my last pit stop. Um, uh, the valve spring broke, uh, and then I was out of the race, and I was uh, almost two laps ahead of uh, uh, a answer who was running second to me uh, and I was just basically cruising home so mm-hmm. uh, here again like you said uh, uh, I don't know how to quantify that you know and uh, somebody called it uh, one of the announcers uh, uh, called it uh, you know the Andretti curse but I I, I never really uh, subscribed to that because uh, uh, I think we've been very blessed as a, as a family at Indianapolis uh, in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I will not ever agree with that first type of thing. And um, so, again, uh, you know, even looking back, satisfaction that we've had as a family in 91 and 92, uh, we, uh, we had four members of the same family uh, racing at Indy which never would never happen before or since you know So as I said there's sure so much to be thankful for
0: yeah I mean as we mentioned you're having all this success in IndyCar but was Formula One still always the aim for you was there never a thought of you know I'm just doing so well here I might just stick around here for a little while and just win all these races no no
1: Formula One was always the back of my mind and uh and and again uh I had to weigh certain opportunities um uh, but uh, I always felt that uh, I wanted to myself to devote a part of my career to Formula One to satisfy, you know, my ultimate dream. Quite honestly, and uh, and you know, things worked out that way. Um, it started out part time, you know, in, in '68, Then I drove some one or two race '69, then '71. I, I won, uh, you know, my first
0: South partner.
1: Africa, yeah, yeah, South Africa, and then. And but I had you know on and off experiences to decide you know I was getting up on the age you know up in my uh, middle thirties and so forth and uh, so I figured I better decide and um, and the opportunity came up and finally to join Colin and uh, and that was uh, that was what I needed you know it just at the right time to do it and um, and again. uh, I could not be more grateful, you know, to Colin for giving me that opportunity and, and, uh, and, and being so lucky to have him just at the right time for, for him. Uh, so, um, again, um, I, I look back at, um, uh, you know, just being able to just ultimately satisfy my most ambitious goals, quite honestly, in my career. I don't know, if I could have asked for anything more.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that you weren't actually able to get a full-time F1 drive till 1975, but after you got pole position in your first proper race in 1968, Watkins Glen, and then took that win in South Africa in 71, surely you had all the big names, all no F1 teams, did you have any F1 teams knocking on your door saying, look, can we have you, or was it just uh, a simple case of schedule that you couldn't fit it in? Oh,
1: uh, I think, Mark well, Colin offered me a full-time drive in 69, and, uh, and in fact, uh, the fact that I, I couldn't take it because of some contractual issues that I had uh, with Firestone, um, the um, that's when Emerson Fittipaldi took my place, and uh, so and you see what he did. You know? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I look back and I figure, well, well, you know, why did I break a contract, you know? So, and then in '71, uh, after winning south africa and then winning uh the two uh the races in ontario california you know it was a non-championship however everybody you know the teams were there and everything was mm-hmm. um and I, I i ran the two 100 mile races with uh with uh, jackie stewart finished second to me uh ferrari offered me a full full time drive uh, in 71 uh to go on and uh and again uh i just uh it, it was a financial situation that I could not ignore, quite honestly, at the time. And uh, so I, I just I couldn't take the job. And then whenever I was free to do it, then the seat was not there for me. Uh, mm. So there was just one opportunity after another that didn't just come about. But uh, so it's just one of those things. Uh, looking back, potentially, I figure, well, maybe I've uh, done... Uh, uh, you know, should have taken uh, Collins' offer at the beginning there, but uh, but I have no regrets. I really don't, because uh, then um, you know, still uh, I was able to do other things and win races in you know, Formula Five Thousand, all of that sports cars. Um, and so uh, looking back, you could always have done something a little bit better, or different, I suppose. But um, but then on you know, the overall picture. Absolutely no regrets. So because everything happened after all the way that I was
0: hoping. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that you weren't actually able to get a full-time F1 drive till 1975. But after you got pole position in your first proper race in 1968, Watkins Glen, and then took that win in South Africa in '71, surely you had all the big names all no F1 teams? Did you have any F1 teams knocking on your door saying, "Look, can we have you?" Or was it just uh, a simple case of schedule that you couldn't fit it in?
1: Well, you know, I again, uh, I I just wanted to race and race. You know, if I had a weekend off, I uh, uh, I just wanted to. Uh, if I had the opportunity to do something else, I would. Even though uh, all of my contracts uh, forbe- had a clause in there that I, you know, technically uh, was in breach of contract. Um, and um, I in well, even in '78, uh, I won. Some, you know, Formula One, we won a champion, but I won some races here in the States in Indy cars driving for Roger Penske and also won the IROC championship in stock cars that year. You know, so uh, I was driving that as well. I remember I was a Silverstone uh, testing uh, with Colin and then uh, following was a weekend off. And he said, uh, what are you going to do this weekend? I said, uh, I'm, I'm racing. I said, I'm racing for Roger Penske. I'm, I'm going to be in Michigan. And he says, well, you can't do that. You know, contract. I said, I know. I said, but I will. <laughs> so <laughs> I was defiant. I, I never argued with that clause in my contracts because I knew that there would have been a long argument. So I just let him put it in there. But I always, uh, you know, uh, I always breached it. And I never got fired, so I guess I had that, a pretty good record that <laughs> But uh, you know, every time you have a contract with the uh, with the primary um, activity uh, for your suit, you're always going to have. They're always going to protect themselves. You can't do this. You can't do that. Uh, you can't go skydiving. You can't do this. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, and I never argue with that. So okay, I won't do any of that. But I always did anyway. So. <laughs>
0: After Parnelli exited Formula One, sort of early 1976, how did that Lotus drive come about? And you know, how did you how did you go into that Lotus drive mid-season?
1: Well, that that was just uh, an event that again it came from the sky because uh, um, uh, it it was the the day after I was actually I, I'll, I'll tell you the scenario. I was in Long Beach at the beginning of the 76 season, uh, whereby um, uh, Right on the grid, uh, Chris Economack, one of the announcers, came over and put the mic in front of me. He said, Hey, Mario, I said, uh, um, uh, what's your reaction that this is going to be your last Formula One race? <laughs> uh, I said, What? <laughs> uh, uh, I said, uh, he said, Well, he said, well, he said Bell, Bell and Parnelli, they decided to pull out of Formula One after this race. And, and I said, Well, it's not news to me. So, uh, anyway, I was really in the dumps, and in fact, uh, I dropped out of the race. I think it was, uh, it was something a rock went through my radiator or something. And uh, the next morning, um, I was having breakfast by myself uh, at the Queensway Hilton, you know, just nearby. And so was Colin, and Colin, the day before, I had the probably the most miserable race the team ever had, and things were not going well. And um, so I'm looking at him, he's looking at me, and I I said, can I join? He says, yes, of course, you know. So we were talking and I said, Colin, I said, "Uh, I'm actually out of Formula One, I said, as of today. I said, "Uh," and he said, Mario, I said, I wish I had a decent car for you. I said, our car is not very good. He said, I wish I had something, to offer you. And I said, well, I said, um, do you have a spot for me? He said, Oh, of course. I said, um, I said, let's go for it. I said, uh, you know, okay. We have a car as a car, so we'll make it better. And, uh, and then we shook hands. We didn't even talk about any contract, anything at that point. We shook hands and said, okay, be there at the next race. I said I want to. I want to remain in Formula One. Right now, mm-hmm. I made that commitment last year. That now is the time for me to stay in Formula One. And uh, that was the best thing could have happened to me. And it happened by accident, you know. So uh, there was providence from upstairs that put us together. <laughs> and, um, and so uh, that was it. That was the beginning of, uh, of a wonderful situation between us. And quite honestly, we made the car better and better because. Uh, I had a couple of podiums uh, before the end of the season. And then then winning the last race, uh, Japan, was obviously a, a great finishing of that particular season. Uh, and a lot of people would say, well, you know, I was kind of uh, weird, was uh, wet and all that. But you know what? I was on pole in the dry. So it was not by accident. And, um, and we won it. We won it well. We won actually by more than a lap. And um, so, and that launched, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, created a lot of energy for the team, you know, to, uh, uh, to, you know, they came up with a of 78 and 77, which was really a great step forward aerodynamically and everything. And and you know, if it would have been for uh, 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 engine uh, reliability, quite honestly, in 77, that should have been an easier championship than even 78 for me. Uh, seventy seven fabulous car um, but nevertheless uh, it, um, it all worked out in the end so
0: you mentioned the nineteen seventy six Formula One season, probably the most one of the most infamous uh Formula one seasons of all time due to the rush film being made about it. but what was it like being around that hunt and louder rivalry
1: well, you know when you 're there, you just do your own thing you know it, uh yeah rivalry was a good rivalry, actually they were good friends. So, robberies are good. That's good for the sport. Uh, I just sometimes wish you could have probably mixed, been more part of it. Uh, But I was getting closer and closer to being part of it, quite honestly. Uh, And uh, then unfortunately, you know, Lada's accident at the Newburgh ring, you know, obviously, uh, you know, disrupted a lot of things. However, from my standpoint, all you do is you try to do your own thing, you know, and try to improve your position. And um, and then I think we were definitely gaining as far as uh, being more and more competitive. That the record shows that. So that's it. I uh, the rivalry in itself, you know, is something that uh, uh, you know you're hardly even aware that's happening, you know.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that 1976 Grand Prix at the Nurburgring um i'm not sure if you've seen the film rush or if you remember much of it um but in the film at the start um before that grand prix there's a, like a driver's briefing where lauda wants to cancel the race um because of the torrential rain conditions um was there such a driver's briefing before and if so how accurate was the film
1: as drivers we did request if not cancelling if there would just delay the race by maybe half an hour because there was a total downpour I mean it was a deluge and uh, and that's what we were hoping to have a slight delay and uh, organizers deny that they said uh, we are on television and uh, and uh, we cannot uh, we cannot do that they, they, they did they deny that to us uh, so uh, again uh, the film portrays you know the usual Hollywood things you know they, uh, I think it was a very interesting film, but a lot of things did not happen. Like, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the driver's beating at the ring and so forth, that uh, uh, what they're claiming, uh, that never happened. Uh, I mean, I was there. And, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then I see at the end there that, that on the, on the uh, pylon, uh, the, uh, they never even they showed the, uh, James finishing third, you know and then winning the championship at one point but never even showed they only showed second for second they never even showed my name that i won the race <laughs> so thanks thanks a lot <laughs>
0: we should uh, make a request for them to re-edit the film and uh, get your name back in there at the end
1: yeah so uh, anyway um but again the, you know talk about the film the film is a film you know they uh, mm. they always have to try to uh, dramatize certain things and uh, I think the um you know um, uh, it, it it was interesting. I think the casting was really well done, you know, is that sort
0: of, mm. Yeah, it was one, it, one of my favorite it was, films.
1: It was wonderful casting there for sure, yeah.
0: Yeah, you mentioned driving a Formula 1 car around the Nordschleife. What is it like driving one of those Formula 1 cars around the Green Hell?
1: Well, that's probably the most challenging Part of anyone's career, quite honestly, because obviously the length and uh, and the fact that um, you know very few drivers probably can claim that they they really know it well. I never felt I really knew it well because uh, uh, some of uh, my outside activity precluded me from really studying that place in which I, you know, to lament that to this day Um, I should have spent more time even. In a regular car, you know, during the week, just go really learn the nuances uh, of the Nurburgring, and um, <clears throat> so I think I missed out on that. But again, uh, I'm just so fortunate. I'm so happy that I've had that experience. However, that I've been there, that I've done that, because uh, it's one of it's got to be one of the most daunting Formula One uh, circuits in the world, and I'm had the
0: taste of it yeah I mean you mentioned not necessarily knowing the Nordschleife as well as you could have but how would you say it is nowadays um for for drivers who can use a simulator um and they can learn the tracks before they even got there like even I can do it by just hopping on iRacing and learning going around the Nordschleife for example how much easier is it for them nowadays than it was for you when you would just rock up to the track and then to qualify
1: yeah, I mean, of course, uh, times change. You know, I wish I would have had a simulator you know, in those days uh, going there cold turkey. You know, um, yeah, it's uh, today, uh, like any other time, you avail yourself with whatever technology, whatever tools you might have to improve uh, your knowledge uh, and your skill, uh, you know, to be able to perform well. So it's uh, the simulators are just another wonderful tool to advance that. And um, yeah, uh, I think it uh, puts your mind at ease a lot more, even though, you know, the simulators today, especially, they're so uh, uh, precise and and uh, so very close to reality. Um, But um, um, again, it's a step forward for sure. I just wish I would have had that knowledge. uh, But. Uh, the other thing is uh, the simulators are available to anyone, so it's yeah. not any specific advantage. It's just another tool to make available for yourself. And uh, it would only be a tremendous advantage if you only had it for yourself, which
0: Yeah, and as you previously mentioned, in 1978, you would uh, go on to win the Holy Grail, if you like, um, the Formula One World Championship in that Lotus 79-wing car. And also, what was it like um, managing the demands of a championship-winning season? And what was it like also driving one of those ground-effect cars brought by Colin?
1: Well, you know, it, it, like I said, it, it was uh, it, an advantage in some ways. And uh, we didn't have a total, total advantage in the sense that we had some issue, breaking issues, uh, brake problem, and other things. But overall, we had the package and we made the most of it. So uh again as a racing driver uh all you do is uh, try to extract 100 percent of what you have under you you know that's your job and um things started going together and and the championship you know i was looking better and better you know obviously that's always encouraging and um so again my uh, ultimate goal in my career was uh, becoming the reality you know throughout that season i uh I had just the memories of the season prior that I felt, uh, you know, uh, we we need we we deserve this because the a year before, like I said, I dropped out of so many uh, races where I was leading. All I had to do is just win one of the races where I was totally in the lead and would have been the champion, world championship. You mm-hmm. know, so I said uh, uh, we got to finish these races, you know, and. Uh, And obviously we did you know, uh, enough anyway. And um, and so, uh, yeah, gratifying is uh, probably, I don't know if that (laughs) describes the the feeling. But, um, yeah, it is the ultimate feeling for for a racing driver, I think. Uh, uh, There's so many things that have been satisfying. You know, another thing, like, uh, for instance, in 77, you know how much of a feather in the cap of a racing driver, Formula One, is to win your home Grand Prix. Yeah. Seventy-seven, seventy-seven, I won the US GP at Long Beach, which is uh, my home Grand Prix. Also, I won my native Grand Prix, which is uh, the Italian Grand Prix in Italy. You know, so you talk about the satisfactions that I derive along the way. You know, at different times where. I didn't even, even at the time, I didn't even realize how important that was to me. Yet later on you do when you start reflecting on it. So you can see that how much, uh, you know, how many good things came out of, uh, you know, my experience in Formula One.
0: Yeah. And what was it like driving those ground effect cars? I mean, I've seen people, I've read people describing them as bombs on wheels. What were they like to drive?
1: It's hard to, the, the, the best description I can give you, you know, every racing driver wants to be quicker through the corners. And that's what uh, downforce uh, gives you, and the ground effects uh, provides ground for I mean, downforce without the penalty, uh, you know, the um, uh, the drag penalty. Uh, so uh, it's it's a great benefit, of course, and uh, and and again, uh, it's extremely satisfying uh, from a driver's standpoint to achieve that. Um, you know. You, Everything you try to do in a race car in the setup is to try to go quicker through the corners. And uh, and uh, aerodynamics are probably the most efficient part, you know, f- to achieve that. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, with Colin, uh, the, the way, you know, this down the ground effects didn't even start, you know, at the beginning. It was something that was... It just worked out because of the, the, the shape of the car that was worked out with the side pod and so forth. But uh, anyway, it's, it's a, I could write a book about how all of that came about, quite honestly. It uh, could be very interesting. Uh, but um, but as you can see today, that's where uh, racing cars uh, all uh, have uh, as a feature, you know, the ground effects. And um, that's, that's free downforce, ground <laughs> effects.
0: Yeah, and finally on Formula One um, topics, Uh, you mentioned that you did some work under Ferrari, sort of bits and bobs. Never managed to uh, get that full, uh, full season drive. But what was it like working under someone like Enzo Ferrari? Was he supportive? Uh, Was he a dictator? As I've heard some people uh, liken him to.
1: Well, more appreciative. But Enzo Ferrari was through and through. Uh, a racer he just uh he just lived and breathed uh you know just uh motor racing that's all that uh, mattered in his life and um and i remember just uh even the times when uh, we had some time to spend together uh, which is at the test track in fiorano uh where he would uh, watch watch you you know test and so on and so forth and uh and, and you could tell, like, whenever he set a time, he came over, he had the brief smile on his face and satisfaction. He was just, uh, there was just something about him that, um, uh, I don't know, he was bigger than life in so many ways, as you can imagine. Um, and um, the relation that I had with him was one on one. And not everybody had that opportunity, quite honestly. But I think that the fact that um, I spoke the language, I think, helped a lot. And uh, as you can see, uh, uh, in later years, there weren't too many uh, Italian drivers actually driving for Ferrari. So um, he didn't have to have an interpreter with me, Mm -hmm. with him directly. And and, uh, that was something very important for me, which uh, today I hold very dear, quite honestly. Uh, But as you say, he was demanding for sure. But uh, here's a man that you could tell why did he love even... uh, uh, Gilles Villeneuve so much because, uh, and Gilles Villeneuve made a few mistakes, you know, so, but he, he never faulted a driver for just really driving, having his heart out, just mm. in front of him, just giving everything that he, even flirting with him, 101%, um, he just, uh, you could tell that he, uh, he, he just, he appreciated that. And um, I remember the, I, I got to tell you the first time that uh, I ever had the opportunity to actually meet him. I told the story a few times, but in 1969, and that was for the Thousand K's in Monza. I was uh, teamed up with. Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> no, no, no! <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm having a
1: blank in my. <laughs> Teamed up
0: with someone, it doesn't matter, we can... Oh, uh... <laughs> no, anyway, and,
1: uh, and, and I, uh, and, and anyway, I, uh, uh, during practice, I, um, um, I, I crunched the front of the car a little bit, and, uh, and, and I figured, well, this is it. I mean, my, I better just get on the next plane back to the States. And I came back in the pits, and uh, and he was he was actually had a brief smile on his face, and, I, and he knew that I was trying so hard, you know, to be quicker than my teammates, you know. And so I I read something right there that uh, you know he would not fault me for trying harder, you know. And uh, and so uh, anyway, uh, it just. That's the way the character, you know. That's the way he was. He just, uh, he, he he never faulted you for trying, trying hard to just be quicker, even though sometimes if you bring the steering wheel back.
0: Yeah, awesome. And (laughs) Chris. I remember,
1: can you imagine? (laughs) Chris was my teammate, and he was very quick, obviously. We can,
0: uh, uh, we can edit it back in before. uh, (laughs) Yeah, please do. Yeah, so one of your biggest crashes, perhaps, in your career was um, in 67, just before the Dunlop Chire Barrier at Le Mans. Uh, was that the reason for you not returning until 82, or was it just various other organisational and schedule sort of reasons?
1: No, no, a crash never determined anything in my career. Like, uh, you know, there was nothing to do with it. Uh, it just was, that it was just, the opportunity wasn't up again. Um, that, that was, that was a pretty big crash you know and and the thing that I uh, I don't dwell so much on, on my crashes quite honestly all I know is that I've been so fortunate uh, you know I did uh, almost uh, actually uh, uh, it's a little over 900 races in my career and and my career started in 59 as I told you and uh, throughout and, and between 59 and 64 and 94, 69, 59 to 94, uh, I only missed two races because of injury. Now, how lucky is that? So, yeah. uh, again, I've had other crashes and, and I've, I've always returned from my crashes um, and only missed two races, like I said. And I returned with uh, still... And not fully fit, you know, but I I just dealt with the pain and so forth. I just wanted to get back in so badly. Hmm. So, again, um, yeah, uh, I've just been so lucky. I just, uh, uh, you can imagine, I've dodged so many bullets, you know. And um, uh, what can I say? Somebody.
0: Up there, looking down kindly on you. Yes,
1: looking down and taking care of me, for sure. Many people praying for me.
0: A topic that's hotly debated amongst drivers, were you one uh, when you were crashing to keep your hands off the steering wheel or were you one, one to keep your hands on the steering wheel? Well, I mean, as far as... As in if you hit the barriers or you are going to be hit by another car?
1: This depends, you know, depends on, you know, what you think is going to hit. But, um, you know, the first thing you try to do, like I said, you just... You, you try not to fight the wheel because you don't know how violent the feedback is going to be. I remember one, one particular incident in Indianapolis. I think it was in 1990. No, it was, uh, I think it was, I'm just trying to think. I think it was uh, in the 70s, yeah, 73, I think it might have been, uh, with the driving for Parnelli with the Eagle. Uh, on the back straightaway in the race, the uh, the rear wing uh, just, just broke. Collapse, and so I was still at full speed and and I knew that you know I had no control of the car and uh, and I knew that with the eagle, a lot of the injuries were foot injuries lower extremity injuries because of the front end you know there was uh, I guess it was not very well uh, you know <laughs> designed and uh, and and I remember I'm short which is a you know a blessing
0: yeah but advantage.
1: I, I really I had time to Pull my feet back, and the whole train in the front, the pedals was wiped off. So if I would would not have done that, I'd probably he would be have wiped had off. A sense of injuries, yeah, you know. And I know that that, but having it seemed like an eternity before I hit because uh, you know usually the accidents happen in a split second, you know, and this because of the straightaway had a long time. Seemed like a long time anyway before I hit the barrier, and um, and and that was. Again, you know, just something told me, yeah, pull the feet back as far as I could. And I came away. I had no injury whatsoever.
0: Then in 82, coming back to Le Mans with your son, Michael, I suppose you've done it all with your brother out there racing with him and then racing with your son, uh, Michael. We talked about the dynamic between two siblings. What's that dynamic like between father and son racing together?
1: Oh, I, uh, it's been uh, extremely rewarding, in my opinion, from a father, of course. And uh, I've had a lot of that uh, along the way in my career. And that's why when I look back and reflect um, how good the sport has been to us as a family, because, um, you know, as you see, I've had the opportunity to be not just uh, teammates on the team with separate cars, but teammates in the same car, you know, with uh, my son, my nephew, John, my other son, Jeff. In fact, you know, Daytona. Uh, in a 24 hours, there was Michael in 93, I, th- I think it was uh, 92 and 93, Michael, Jeff, and myself <laughs> at Porsche, you know, and in uh, 88, it was uh, at Le Mans, was Michael, uh, my nephew John, and myself, you know, in a car. Um, I'm, I'm just going to go through some of these uh, family events, and you know that um, Fergus, that uh, Michael and I in IndyCars have been on podium 15 times. Well wow. um, Yes, and we finished one, two, five times. And uh, we started on the front row of an IndyCar race 10 times.
0: That's a hell of a record.
1: That's a hell of a record as a family. And uh, I'll give you another one. In 1986, at the Pocono 500, there was a supporting event. You know, like you know, Formula be a Formula yeah, Two, yeah, Formula Two or Three, three. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. S- the supporting event, which my younger son Jeff was in that, and that race was on a Saturday, and Jeff was on pole for that race. He won that race. Michael was on pole for the 500, and I won the 500 the next day. So between the three of us, we clean house that weekend. Now family, up all the trophies. How could you, you know, want anything more? So. Uh, when I look back, there were such precious moments, you know, and um, you can imagine, uh, you know, as a father, uh, how rewarding it is to, to have had that opportunity because you can never really predict or even even design that, if you will. It's one thing that it's either going to happen or not, you know. And so, uh, again, when when I look back, uh, yeah, I have so much to be thankful for, really.
0: Certainly a unique family bonding activity. Not many, um, you wouldn't see many families under partaking in that one for sure. Yeah, indeed,
1: indeed, yes.
0: Yeah, you mentioned your son, Michael, um, with all that mess in Formula One, with that, and, 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 you know, all that situation. What happened with Michael Andresi's career, your son, um, in Formula One?
1: Well, the only way I can put it, I think uh, he went to the best team at the worst possible time, quite honestly. Um, what it was, it was, uh, uh, he, he was going there and to be able to basically replace Seroton Senna. And uh, McLaren had hired uh, Mika Hakkinen, I think was from Lotus at, at the time. He's a reserve and, driver, wasn't it? Uh, who was he driving for,
0: I think? I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure he initially came as a test and reserve driver.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, you know, he uh, uh, he was going to be the sets. It was going to be Michael and Mika Hakkinen, the way yeah. I understood, and then the deal with uh, Williams never materialized for uh, Ayrton. So uh, here you had um, uh, Michael, which was there, you know, with considerable, uh, I would say, stipend, <laughs> you know, contract, you know. And he had two big contracts that uh, McLaren had to deal with. And here was Mika Hock and basically almost for free on the on sideline. So uh, there's a story here that could be written, a book could be written on this situation. I can tell you that. And, um, and anyway, uh, the things that I can fault about Michael is that he was used to winning and he tried a little bit too hard at the beginning, which was... You know, Michael was never a crasher. You know, hmm. but he he did uh, he did do some of that. You know, at the beginning of the season, trying too hard at the start of the race, and uh, and that, that didn't help him a lot. Um, at, at the end, though, I mean, uh, and and of course, if you remember, that season was the f- the only time that they um, uh, you you could not test at the tracks. Prior to the season, at the tracks where you were going to race, yeah, look back at look at look back the uh, to regulations, mm. and also in practice, the team any driver could not do more than the total each practice of twenty four laps total, including in and out. So he turkey. was there cold turkey on any tracks. He had tested, you know. Uh, you know, during the season, I think twice at Silverstone, I think. Uh, and then he tested there with, uh, with the Honda engine. And then he never tested with the Cosworth engine because Honda, that was the end of the Honda uh, relationship with McLaren. So they lost that advantage. And then they were with, Lo- with the Cosworth. And, um, you know, he, looking back, even the very first race of the season, which was for South Africa, Michael had never seen that. He had never even driven, you know, that. So uh,
0: in the deep end, truly.
1: Yeah, well, and he was only half the second off with Senna in time. Mm. I mean, I think Senna was the only one that actually, Senna was, and Michael, you know, were good friends. And uh, Senna is the only one that actually appreciated what Michael was going through. And, uh, and so the one mistake that I think that Michael probably made, and I'll say it, Clearly, he probably should have uh, uh, should have been more humble. And and uh, and and when uh, uh, when Ron Dennis told him that um, uh, he wanted uh, Mika Hakkinen to finish the season, uh, starting you know uh, starting Monza, uh, I asked him, so please, please, please have him do at least Monza, at least you know, in which Michael actually came back with a podium. And Monza, and uh, but uh, at the same time, I think if Michael would have been more humble and said hey, to run Dennis, I will wait, because Dennis says that I cannot renew your option until probably late November, you know, because he wanted to see what the, you know what uh, what Ayrton was going to do, and uh, and and Michael said, well, I'm not going to wait, and he made a decision to come back. Uh, But uh, I would have loved to have seen Michael do a full, full season in Formula One. I guarantee you, guarantee you that he would have done well because Michael, I've raced against him and uh, I don't know how many, I I cannot name another driver as tough as he was, you know, on on track, you know, he he was capable. Uh, So it's unfortunate. I think I put that to his, he probably didn't. Deep down, maybe he didn't have the passion that I did for Formula One, quite honestly. That might be the the, the, the ultimate situation. But uh, if he would have uh, kind of waited a little more, he did. Michael was afraid that, uh, you know, probably a good ride in the IndyCar would disappear if he waited too long. Uh, and, and he would have had to do a sabbatical. And that was his biggest fear. And uh, But he... If he really uh, had the real passion to be in Formula 1, he probably would have waited and I think uh, Ron Dennis would have uh, picked him up again because, uh, you know, uh, Ayrton finally did go. Uh, with, to Williams, yeah. And then, uh, then he would have been Michael and Kimi uh, and Mika, I should say. And uh, and I think, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that that didn't happen.
0: Yeah, going back to that, uh, what we mentioned earlier with the Hackenden situation, he was under, he was at Lotus and went to Williams um, But then they didn't submit their entry list So then he decided to join Ligier And then McLaren wanted him There was a legal battle which McLaren eventually Won out with Hacken and basically then Joined McLaren from that
1: Yeah, yeah, okay But uh, I knew that there was something like that But uh, but again uh, It's just one of those things that uh, It was a uh, mixed bag of situations And uh, he could put the blame Here, there or there But uh uh, ultimately, I think uh, uh, maybe Michael. You know, Michael, if he would have really had this goal of, of uh, doing some Formula One properly, he, he could have probably uh, stuck it out. And I think he, I think Ron Dennis would have picked up the uh, the option once uh, once Ayrton was uh, moved know, on. Moved on. You
0: know. Yeah. Yeah. We've mentioned the stellar record of the Andretti family name in motorsport with, obviously, uh, probably the three most famous ones currently, uh, Marco, uh, you and Michael. Um, Are there any other Andrettis coming up through the ranks that we might uh, be ones to look out for in the future?
1: Sure. Mario. It's it's, uh, Michael's, one of Michael's twins. We call him Rio,
0: but his his name is Mario. (laughs) That must get confusing, uh, yeah, when two people are answering to the same yeah, name. Yeah,
1: he's, uh, he's only about seven years old. But, uh, oh, my goodness, he's out there, you know, with the uh, uh, – he's on a simulator already. But he's uh, – I, I, I see potentially that uh, that might be the, the next one, next for the Andretti's, uh to, to pursue this.
0: <laughs> there you go. Maybe one day Junior Mario will be on the podcast as a Formula 1 driver. Who knows? <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Who knows, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that you've done work um, for being the ambassador for the United States Grand Prix and um, for Cota Circuit of the America itself. Um, do you think that, obviously kota is a is a driver and fan favourite, but do you think that the the Grand Prix in the United States is fully settled after that whole debacle in um, Indy in 2005?
1: I certainly hope so. I mean, uh, Formula One does belong in the US. No question, um, and uh, and I think, uh, of course, uh, I think the Circuit the Americas provides uh, a fabulous uh, infrastructure, fabulous facility to host Formula One in every way, and, um, and so uh, I just uh, you know there's always the financial situations you know that come into play, but uh, um, the, uh, it being a, uh, a circuit that's uh, the infrastructure is just there forever. I think uh, both very well for the future, of Formula One in the States. And, uh, and, yes, it needs to be continued. I know there's talk about, uh, you know, having potentially um, a temporary circuit uh, somewhere, even potentially in Miami, uh, uh, you know, as a second event in the U.S. I think the U.S. is big enough to potentially uh, host two Formula One races, I would say. Uh, in fact, I would say the more the merrier because I think uh, they would probably uh, do a lot, a lot of good by developing, uh, creating more fan base. And at the same time, I think uh, uh, the Formula One fan base in the U.S. is probably understated, in my opinion, or underestimated. Um, but again, Formula One needs to be in the States, no question about it.
0: How important do you um, think it is for a Formula One driver, um, for there to be a Formula One driver in the future from the United States? To obviously, have Logan Sargent, who finished runner-up in Formula Three this year.
1: Yeah, Fergus, that, that's the next step, quite honestly. That I would love to see. Um, uh, there needs to be a U.S. driver in Formula One, quite honestly, for to really capture the imagination of a lot of the fans here mm. to see. Um, and, and I think it would be good all the way around. It would be good for the sport for sure. Um, and um, I just hope hope it happens sooner than later. Quite honestly, uh, the talent is out there; it's all to be exploited. You know, a lot of it's uh, it's so difficult. You could see. I mean, we've seen this with George Russell this this past weekend. Um, uh, how do you evaluate a driver? You know, George Russell. You look at uh, you know unfortunately with Williams uh, his performance, you know, where was his best finish? I think it was like mm. 12th or something and here he is with the top line cars and he's uh, fighting for pole and fighting for a race win immediately on mm. a car that was totally strange to him. So um, he, you know, if, an, if a US driver is to make it in Formula 1 uh, you need to have some opportunity with a top team at least to evaluate the potential nothing else. And uh, that's the part that's very difficult. And how do you do that? You only do that if you have the opportunity one of the top three teams, you know, performing in Formula One. Uh, yeah. That's always, that's always been the case. I look back at, uh, you know, my, myself in, in Formula One. Why did I have an auspicious beginning? Because I was there with a the car that was capable. Mm-hmm. I was there with Lotus. Why did I win my first race, you know, because I was there with Ferrari. You see what I mean? You have to be with a team that's capable, otherwise the driver cannot perform miracles. You know, mm. and, uh, and so, you know, Formula One is not necessarily a spec series. Like, you know, an IndyCar today, uh, you almost can join any team and you can show your stuff because the car is basically the same, yep. you know. And in Formula One, that's not the point. Mm. That's not the situation, I should say. And uh, so, uh, again, uh, the only way that uh, a proper potential talent for Formula One, a US talent, would have to be evaluated with one of the top three teams. And uh, if that doesn't happen, then it's it's, it's a lost cause.
0: Yeah, you mentioned F1. Obviously, we've all been keeping a close eye on the Formula One season. Um, But looking ahead, how much of an impact do you think – the 2022 regs are going to have uh, on formula one as a whole with the slower cars and the cost caps
1: well you know uh, you need a magic wand to be able to answer all those questions you know that uh, uh the, the, you know the, the potential the cost caps i mean uh, it could be uh, leveling the field a little bit more for sure you know no question uh but um uh, again i think formula one is still in a good place it's still it's got uh, uh all of the attractions that uh, Formula One fans really uh, are looking for. Um, the, uh, the criteria is still strong; it will remain. Each team, you know, must be their own manufacturer. So there's always the technical side of it that's purely interesting. Uh, I mean, you look at uh, even uh, Bahrain, you know, on the on the uh, on, on the uh, the oval. Perim- 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 circuit, you know, where. Uh, you could tell that, you know, you, you had cars, I mean, teams that uh, you look at the, the the top 10, 15 cars were within a second, mm. you know, of each other, you know, and, and they're all different types of cars with different engineers and so forth. That's fascinating, you know, and um, so again, uh, yeah, the dominance of, uh, of Mercedes is something that uh, makes it very predictable, just like when Michael Schumacher was winning all the racing with Ferrari. Yeah. You know, mm. and uh, and that's nothing. Nothing new. True, nothing new in Formula One when you look back. McLaren had dominance. Williams had dominance. Yep. Ferrari had dominance. Lotus so, as well. Lotus, so, of course. So again, uh, it's uh, that's the way that the situation can be in Formula One, and it uh, puts the onus on the other teams to uh, to, to to catch up. Uh, I think that the interesting aspect of Formula One, but for the fan base, uh, if especially the strong Ferrari fan base around the world, is to see how Ferrari will regroup for next year. You know, historically Ferrari, like anybody else, has been up and down, you know? Mm. And Mercedes has not always been up at the top either, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, again, you're just gonna wait for the moment that uh, somehow the some of the teams that uh, you expect uh, to be up there will they reach a sweet spot, you know. They reach something and and uh, start fighting back. Um, so uh, there's going to be a lot of anxiety for next year to see just uh, uh, how Ferrari will do. You know how much they, you know, they will gain. There's some driver movements, you know, that's going to be able to uh, to see. Uh, be interesting. So there, there, there's always something interesting to look forward to, and uh, and it's definitely there. So. Um, Um, Yeah, Formula One, you know, is in a good place, no question.
0: Yeah, you previously mentioned Adrian Newey. Um, How many of the current F1 drivers do you know and maybe keep in contact with and sort of, do you have any influence at all in the paddock? Myself?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know if I have any influence in the paddock. I'm not sure if I understand the question quite honestly, but... uh, uh, you mentioned Adrian Newey. I mean, he's very much a protagonist in Formula One, as you know. Um, if I were a driver, uh, to have a, a, someone like Adrian Newey design the car that I was going to drive, I'd feel pretty good about going into the, you know, the season. So, um, you know, Adrian Newey has uh, been uh, magical, you know, for every team that he's ever uh, been part of. We could see that. Um, as a driver, obviously, uh, that's a you always like to have on your side, you know, or Adrian uh, Nguyen or someone just like him, you know. it's uh, Those are the ingredients that are necessary to be able to perform.
0: With the recent surprise announcement in the last couple of weeks of BMW pulling out Formulary, um do you have any inside information on whether Andretti Autosport will continue in formulary? And what's your opinion on the future of electric racing? Well,
1: you know, it's... Um, uh, all I know from Michael that uh, uh, his intentions are I think uh, to remain uh, but obviously when you have uh, manufacturers in there you have to align yourself with the manufacturer mm. you know uh, and so uh, he, he's waiting and seeing he's very anxious to see what uh, the future could be there he's a, uh, he has still a season ahead of him to be able to put all those uh, potentials opportunities to bed, um, And uh, as far as the future is concerned of uh, Formula E, uh, uh, I don't know how to say it, uh, but uh, I will say it. I'm not a total fan of that. I think, uh, uh, you know, there's a place for Formula E for electric cars and motor racing, but uh, I, I think, um, I don't know, uh, the spectacle of uh, The engine noise is half the spectacle in in motorsports, no question. Um, And uh, so, uh, from from that standpoint, I think that uh, a racing car that makes noise will still be be something that will be supreme for me.
0: Maybe they need to stick uh, speakers on the back of the car with the old the v with the old engines uh, back in 1998.
1: All all that sort of stuff.
0: Anyway, everyone, that's it for the episode. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor having you on Mario. I hope you have enjoyed this chat as much as I have. And if you're not already, please make sure you are following Mario on the relevant social media. I think it's just uh, Mario Andretti on Twitter, I believe, right? On, on
1: Twitter, yes.
0: Yeah. Make sure you're following um, Mario on Twitter. Twitter and,
1: yeah. and Instagram, it's Andretti Mario.
0: Yeah, so as I said, make sure you are following Mario on all of those. And please be sure to, uh, there'll be, all the links will be in the description. Please be sure to check them out. Make sure you're following uh, me as well. Uh, My links will be down there. And make sure you're following Gus. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to come on. I'm sure he was gutted after he had a bad throat and couldn't actually speak. So. Uh, hopefully he's feeling better by the time this comes out and anyway if you're on spotify please follow if you're on apple please leave a five star rating and subscribe do all the good stuff comment down below if you're on youtube and have a great day and stay safe bye bye